0: Chapter twenty James Hervey of Western Favel There is a remarkable chapter in the book of Judges in which Deborah and Barak sing a triumphal hymn after the defeat of the hosts of Sisera. In one part of this hymn they recount the names of the tribes that came forward most readily to do battle for the freedom of Israel. Some of the tribes are mentioned in high praise, others are dismissed with expressions of reproach. None are so much commended as Zebulun and Naphtali. They were a people who jeopardized their lives unto the death in the high places of the field, Judges five eighteen. One specific sentence is used in the account of Zebulun that deserves special notice. Out of Zebulun, those who handled the pen of the writer came down, Judges five fourteen. The expression is a strange one it cannot be denied that its meaning is involved in some obscurity there is some probability in the conjecture of those who think it signifies scribes who assembled the armies of zebulun and wrote down the names of those who went to war compare jeremiah 52:25 whatever the specific meaning of it is one thing is abundantly clear the zeal of zebulun in god's cause was such that among her warriors in the day of battle there were some who were more accustomed to wield the pen than the sword. When God's work was to be done, the soldier and the writer stood shoulder to shoulder and side by side. The expression has often recurred to my mind lately as I studied the history of English Christianity a hundred years ago. I am amazed at the variety of instruments God used in carrying on the great revival of Christianity that then took place. I see some men who were mighty with the tongue and bowed the hearts of assemblies by their preaching, as the trees of the wood are bowed by the wind. I see others who were mighty in government and skilful in organizing, directing, arranging, and administering. In addition to these, though, I see others who were mighty with the pen and did work for Christ that was as real and lasting as that of any of their contemporaries. They made no public show. They didn't cry, strive, or let their voices be heard in the street, Isaiah 42, 2, but they labored in their way most effectively for the advancement of pure evangelical religion. They reached minds that were never brought under the influence of Whitefield, Wesley, or Romaine. They produced results in many places that will never be fully known until the Judgment Day. Foremost, perhaps, in this class of men in the eighteenth century was James Hervey of Western Favelle, the author of Theron and *Aspasio*? James Hervey was born on February 26, 1713, at Hardingston, near Northampton. His father was a minister in the neighboring parishes of Collingtree and Western Favelle, but appears for some reason to have lived outside of his parish. I can find no certain information about his parents regarding their religious opinions or their practice. The parishes of which his father was minister are small rural places, very near the town of Northampton, on the southeastern side. The date of his birth deserves notice on one account. It shows that he was one of the small group of men whom God sent into the world at a special time to do a special work together in England. Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, Berridge, Rowlands, Romaine, Venn, Walker, and Hervey were all born during the first twenty years of the eighteenth century between seventeen hundred and seventeen twenty. The facts and events of Hervey's life are notably few. He was educated at the Grammar School of Northampton, remaining there from the time he was seven years old until he was seventeen. Only two things are recorded about his school life. One is that he was very skilful and proficient in all games and recreations. The other is that he made great progress in Latin and Greek, and would have made even more progress if his schoolmaster had allowed him to. However, it seems that this worthy teacher made it a rule never to allow any of his students to advance quicker than his own son. In the year 1731, Hervey was sent to Oxford and entered Lincoln College. The first two years of his university life appear to have been spent in idleness. Like many young men, he suffered much from the lack of some wise friend to advise and direct him in his studies. In 1733, however, he became acquainted with John and Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, Benjamin Ingham, and other serious-minded young men, and derived great benefit from their society. Under their influence and example, he began a steady course of reading, and made himself master of such books as Derham's Astro-Theology, Ray's Wisdom of God in Creation, and other works of a similar kind. He also began studying the Hebrew language. This was not all. He also began to follow his new companions in their efforts to attain and promote a high standard of Christianity. Like them, he began to live by method, received the communion every Sunday, visited the sick and the prisoners in jail, and read to poor people. The last three years of his Oxford life were thus usefully employed, and the result was that he left the university in 1736 with a good foundation of steady habits of living, and with a very fair amount of knowledge and scholarship. His writings certainly supply abundant proof that, considering the times he lived in, he was a well-read and well-educated man. No one seems to have been more useful to Hervey at this period of his life than John Wesley. At a later date, after doctrinal differences had separated the two men, the minister of Western Favelle gave grateful and honorable testimony to this fact. In one of his letters he says, I earnestly thank you, as for all other assistance, so especially for teaching me Hebrew. I have cultivated this study according to your advice. I can never forget that tender-hearted and generous fellow of Lincoln who condescended to take such compassionate notice of a poor undergraduate whom almost everybody despised and whose soul no man cared for. Happy is that college where fellows show kindness to undergraduates and do not neglect them. Attention of this kind costs little, but it is worth much, Gains influence and bears fruit after many days. In the year 1736, Hervey was ordained a minister by Dr. Potter, Bishop of Oxford, and in 1736 he became assistant to his father at Weston Favell. He seems to have filled this position for only a very short time. In 1738, he was the minister at Dummer, near Basingstoke in Hampshire, a position, strange enough, that George Whitefield had also occupied about the same year. In 1740, he moved to Biddeford in North Devonshire, and remained there until August 1743. He then returned to Western Favell and once more became assistant to his father. This was his last move. After his father died in 1752, James succeeded him as minister of Western Favell and Collingtree, but only survived him six years. He died of pulmonary consumption at Western Favell on Christmas Day of 1758 at the comparatively early age of forty-five. Unlike most ministers, he preached the gospel among the people who had known him from his earliest infancy, and was buried a very few miles from the place where he had been born. In life and death he dwelt among his own people 2 Kings 4, 13. Hervey's spiritual history presents several interesting features. I can find no evidence that he knew anything of true Christianity when he was a boy or a young man. Though mercifully kept from the excess of riot and immorality into which the young frequently run, he seems to have been completely careless and thoughtless about his soul. The beginning of a work of grace in his heart may undoubtedly be traced to his residence at Oxford and his fellowship with Wesley and Whitefield, which he began at the age of twenty. Yet even then, he seems to have been much in the dark for some years and to have been relatively ignorant of the distinctive doctrines of biblical Christianity. His college friends, it must be admitted, knew little more than he did. Their early struggles after light were made through a fog of mysticism and asceticism that impeded their course for years. The freeness and simplicity of the gospel, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the real meaning of justification by faith without the deeds of the law, and the folly of putting doing before believing, were all subjects that this little band of young men at Oxford were very slow to understand. Each and all, in their turns, struggled through their intellectual difficulties and came out on the right side. One of the last of this group to reach this firm ground and grasp the whole truth as it is in Jesus was James Hervey. In fact, it wasn't until the year 1741, five years after he had been ordained, that he thoroughly received the whole gospel into his heart and embraced the whole system of evangelical doctrine. Two sermons preached by Hervey at Biddeford about the year 1741, in which he plainly declared his change of beliefs, were commonly called his recantation sermons. The state of Hervey's heart during the seven years preceding 1741 must have been one of continual conflict and inward dissatisfaction. Enlightened enough to feel the value of his soul and to see something of the sinfulness of sin, he was still unacquainted with the way of peace. His letters written at this period, both before and after ordination, present a mind full of pious thoughts, holy desires, and high aspirations, but with everything out of proportion and out of place. The writer says excellent things about the soul, sin, God, the Bible, the world, and duty. And even says much about Christ. You cannot help admiring his obvious sincerity, purity of mind, and zeal to do good. But you cannot help feeling that he doesn't have hold of things by the right end, and doesn't see the whole of religion. He is like an excellent and well formed ship without a compass and rudder. He doesn't have his feet upon the rock. He is constantly putting things in their wrong places. The last are too often first and the first are too often last. He says things that are true, but he does not say them in the right way, and at the same time he leaves out much that should be said. The unsatisfactory character of Hervey's theology at the beginning of his ministry is well illustrated by the following anecdote. In one of the Northamptonshire parishes where he preached before 1741, there lived a ploughman who usually attended the ministry of Dr. Doddridge, and was very informed in the doctrines of grace. Hervey was ordered by his physicians, for the benefit of his health, to follow the plough in order to smell the fresh earth. He frequently accompanied this ploughman when he was working. Knowing that he was a serious man, Hervey asked him one morning, What do you think is the most difficult thing in Christianity? The ploughman replied, Sir, I am a poor man, and you are a minister. I request permission to return the question." then mr hervey said i think the most difficult thing is to deny sinful self basing his opinion on our lord's admonition if any man will come after me let him deny himself luke 9:23 i argued said mr hervey upon the importance and extent of the duty showing that merely to refrain from sinful actions is little but we must deny admittance and entertainment to evil thoughts and must extinguish improper desires in this way I shot my random arrow. The ploughman quietly replied, Sir, there is another instance of self denial to which the injunction of Christ equally extends that is the most difficult thing in the Christian religion, and that is to deny righteous self. You know I don't go to hear you preach, but I go every Sunday with my family to hear Dr. Doddridge at Northampton. We rise early in the morning and have prayer before we set out, in which I find pleasure. Walking there and back, I find pleasure. Under the sermon, I find pleasure. When at the Lord's table, I find pleasure. We return, read a portion of Scripture, and go to prayer in the evening, and I find pleasure. But still, to this moment, I find it the most difficult thing to deny righteous self, to renounce my own strength and righteousness and not to lean on that for holiness, or rely on this for justification. In repeating this story to a friend, Mr. Hervey observed, I then hated the righteousness of Christ. I looked at the man with astonishment and scorn. I thought he was a fool, and I wondered what I thought was an unlearned mixture of piety and strangeness in his beliefs. I have since seen clearly who the fool was. It wasn't the wise old plowman, but the proud James Hervey. I now discern sense, solidity, and truth in his observations. During this period of Hervey's life, his old Oxford friend, the famous George Whitefield, frequently corresponded with him. That mighty man of God had been brought into the full light of the gospel, and like this Samaritan woman, John 4, burned with desire to bring all whom he knew and loved into the same glorious liberty. While the following letter, dated November 10, 1739, from Philadelphia, shows Whitefield's deep concern for his friend's salvation, it also makes Hervey's defective religious principles at this period very evident. I long to have my dear friend come forth and preach the truth as it is in Jesus, not a righteousness or holiness of our own, whereby we make ourselves right, but the righteousness of another, even the Lord our righteousness, upon the imputation and understanding of which by faith we will be made right by His Holy Spirit to live with and enjoy God. Dear Mr. Hervey, it is an excellent thing to be convinced of the freeness and riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. It is sweet to know and preach that Christ justifies the ungodly, and that all good works are not so much as partly the cause, but the effect of our justification. Until you are convinced of these truths, you must assent that free will is in man which is directly contrary to the Holy Scriptures and to the articles of our church. Let me advise dear Mr. Hervey, laying aside all prejudices, to read and pray over Paul's epistles to the Romans and Galatians, and then to tell me what he thinks of this doctrine. Most of our old friends are now happily enlightened. God sets His seal to such preaching in an extraordinary manner, and I am persuaded that the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against it. Oh, that dear Mr. Hervey would also join with us! Oh, that the Lord would open his eyes to rightly behold this mystery of godliness! How it would rejoice my heart! How it would comfort his own soul! He would no longer groan under a spirit of bondage, but he would be brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God! Hervey's excellent biographer, John Brown of Whitburn, gives the following clear account of Hervey's state of mind at this period. It is evident that he was seeking salvation, but he sought it, as it were, by the works of the law. One of his leading errors was that he had a low, insufficient, inadequate understanding of the love of God. From this, unavoidably, followed a lack of esteem for imputed righteousness, a conceit of personal qualifications, a spirit of legal bondage, and a tincture of pharisaical pride he conceived faith to be no more than a mere believing of promises, if he did well, and of condemnation, if he did not do well. He desired salvation to be bestowed upon some sincere, pious, and worthy people, and was distressed because he could not find himself among that number. To use his own words, when he felt that he was grievously deficient in duty, he would comfort himself by saying, Soul, your God only requires sincere obedience and maybe tomorrow will be more abundant in acts of holiness. Whenever come by sin, he would call to mind his righteous deeds, thinking that he could lessen the severity of divine justice and even the scores for his offenses by his duties. In order to be reconciled to God and to ease his conscience, he would promise stricter watchfulness, more charity, and renewed fastings. For some time, letters from Whitefield were disregarded Or answered with stubborn silence. But in time, by this and other means, a saving change took place in Mr. Hervey's mind. Hervey said, The two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, made the first awakening impression on my heart. Amazing! I thought that if these commands of God are as imperative as the prohibition of adultery or the observation of the Sabbath, Then my whole life has been a continued act of disobedience. There has not been a day or an hour in which I have performed my duty. This conviction struck me as the handwriting upon the wall struck the presumptuous monarch. It pursued me as Saul pursued the Christians, not only to my own house, but to distant cities. This continued until, under the influence of the Spirit, I was brought weary and heavy laden to Jesus Christ. Then God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shined into my heart and gave me the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It would be difficult to give a more powerful and interesting account of the change that came over Hervey than that which he himself gave in a letter to his faithful friend, George Whitefield. Hervey wrote, You asked me how the Holy Spirit convinced me of self-righteousness and drove me out of my false rest. Indeed, sir, I cannot tell the light was not instantaneous. It didn't flash upon my soul, but arose like the dawning of the day. A little book by Jenks called Submission to the Righteousness of God was beneficial to me. Your journals, dear sir, and sermons, especially that sweet sermon on the text What Think You of Christ, were a means of bringing me to the knowledge of the truth. Another piece has also been similar precious eye-salve to my dim and clouded understanding. I am referring to Walter Marshall's Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. These, blessed be he who is a light to those who sit in darkness, have in some degree convinced me of my former errors. I now begin to see that I have been laboring in the fire and wearying myself in pride while I have attempted to establish my own righteousness. I trusted I knew not what while I trusted in some imaginary good deeds of my own. These are no hiding places from the storm they are a refuge of lies. Even if I had the meekness of Moses, the patience of Job, the zeal of Paul, and the love of John, I dare not advance the least argument to eternal life on this footing. As for my own meager efforts and wretched righteousness, gracious Emmanuel, I am ashamed, I am grieved that I should try to force them into the plan of your divine, your inconceivably precious obedience. My plans and thoughts are changed, I now desire to work in my blessed Master's service, not in order to obtain life, but because I have obtained life and salvation. I desire to learn to please Him in righteousness and holiness all the days of my life. In another letter to Whitefield of about the same date, Hervey says, I acknowledge with shame and sorrow that I have been a blind leader of the blind. My tongue and my pen have perverted the good ways of the Lord and have darkened the glory of redeeming merit and sovereign grace. I have dared to invade the glories of an all-sufficient Savior and to pluck the crown off His head. My writings and sermons have detracted from the honor, the everlasting, inexpressible honor of Jesus. They dared to give works a share in the redemption and recovery of a lost sinner. They have placed filthy rags on the throne of the Lamb and by that means have dishonored the Savior and exalted the sinner. I believe, though, that the divine truth begins to dawn on my soul. Oh, may it, like the rising sun, shine more and more until the day breaks in all its brightness and the shadows flee away. Now, if I possessed all the righteous acts that have made saints and martyrs famous in all generations, if their works could be transferred to me and I could call them my own, I would renounce them all that I might win Christ. I make no excuse for the length at which I have dwelt on this part of James Hervey's history. A mere worldly person might see nothing interesting in it, but a true Christian, unless I am greatly mistaken, will find it full of instruction. It is useful to mark the diversities of the operation of the Spirit. How slowly and gradually he carries on his work in some hearts compared to the rapid progress he makes in others. It is useful to notice the extent of his operations, how thoroughly he can turn a man's theological beliefs upside down. How little we know what a young self-righteous minister may one day become by God's grace. It would be good for the Christian church if more of her ministers were taught of God and brought to sit at the feet of Christ like James Hervey. The last seventeen years of Hervey's life were spent in comparative retirement at Western Favelle. My house, he writes to a friend, is quite secluded. It faces the garden and the field, so that we hear none of the tumultuous commotion of the world. We see nothing but the wonderful and charming works of the Creator. Oh, that I may be enabled to make good use of this advantageous solitude! As willing as he undoubtedly was to go forth into public and do the work of an evangelist like his beloved friend Whitefield, his delicate health made it quite impossible. From his youth up he had shown a certain tendency to pulmonary consumption. He had neither voice nor physical strength to preach in the open air, address large congregations, and grab the attention of multitudes like many of his contemporaries. He saw this clearly, and he wisely submitted to God's appointment. Those whom he could not reach with his voice he resolved to access with his pen. From his isolated study in his Northamptonshire parish he sent forth arrows that were sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. In a word, he became a diligent writer on behalf of the gospel from the time of his conversion until he was laid in his grave. Poor health, no doubt, often stopped his labor and laid him aside, but even though he was weak, he was always pursuing. As delicate and weak as he always was, his pen was very seldom idle, and he was always doing what he could. The work to which he devoted himself required a large amount of faith and patience. He labored on without encouragement by admiring crowds, and unaided by the excitement that often carries forward the weary preacher. While health and strength lasted, James Hervey never ceased to labor, and he seldom labored in vain. Hundreds were reached by Hervey's writings who would never have gone to listen to Whitefield's voice. The very retirement from the parish at Western Favell was not without its advantages. It gave the worthy minister unbroken freedom for writing. He could sit down in his study without fear of being disturbed by the endless little interruptions that disturb the dweller in large towns and make the continuous flow of thought almost impossible. Above all, it gave him plenty of time for reading and storing much in his mind. It has been well said that reading makes a full man And no one can look through Hervey's writings without seeing abundant evidence that he was a great reader. From his youth, he was familiar with Greek and Roman classical writers. The following theological writers are said to have been among his special favorites Chrysostom, Gerhardt, Ayling, Owen, Manton, Goodwin, Reynolds, Hall, Beveridge, Bunyan, Hopkins. Howe, Bates, Flavell, Caryll, Poole, Charnock, Trail, Taratine, Witsius, Vitringa, Hurrian, Layton, Polhill, Gill, Brine, Guise, Boston, Rawlins, Coles, Jenks, Marshall, Erskine, Milton, Young, and Watts the names of these authors speak for themselves. The man who was familiar with their works was likely to be full of matter, and when he wrote for the printing press, he had an honest right to claim a patient hearing. The ways of God's providence are mysterious and truly instructive. If Hervey had not been kept at home by poor health, he would probably never have had time for much reading. If he had not had time to be a reader, he would never have written what he did. The English puritans appear to have been special favourites with hervey again and again in his biography we find him speaking of them in terms of the highest commendation for instance he says in one place be not ashamed of the name puritan the puritans were the soundest preachers and i believe the truest followers of christ in their day he also said for my part i esteem the puritans as some of the most zealous christians who ever appeared in our land and The Puritans, one and all of them, glory in the righteousness of their great Mediator. They extol His imputed righteousness on almost every page and pour contempt on all other works compared with their lords. For my part, I do not know of any group of writers in the world so remarkable for this doctrine and diction. It truly distinguishes them from the majority of our modern writings. I make no apology for these quotations they throw broad, clear light on Hervey's theological opinions. Nothing brings out a man's distinctive religious views as thoroughly as his choice of books. Tell me what Christian authors a minister loves to read, and I will soon tell you to what school of theology he belongs. The main writings that Hervey published in his lifetime were two volumes of Meditations and Contemplations, and three volumes of Dialogues and Letters between two fictitious people whom he named Theron and Aspasio. The meditations are soliloquies and thoughts arising out of such subjects as the tombs, a flower garden, creation, night, and the starry heavens. The dialogues between Theron and Aspasio touch on many points of theology, but especially upon the great doctrine of justification by faith in the imputed righteousness of Christ. If his life had continued. Hervey intended to have added a fourth volume of dialogues that were to be about the subject of Christian holiness. However, his early death cut short the plan, and he was only able to tell his friends that they must regard his favorite book, Marshall's Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, as his deputy and representative. His words were, I appoint Marshall to supply my lack of service. Marshall expresses my thoughts, carries out my plans, and not only pursues the same goal, but proceeds in the same way. I will therefore rejoice in the prospect of having the gospel mystery of sanctification stand as a fourth volume to Theron and Aspasio. Both of Hervey's works just mentioned attained an extraordinary degree of popularity from the moment they were published, and obtained a worldwide reputation for the author. In fact, they formed the entire foundation of his fame. Thousands and tens of thousands of Christians have never known anything of Hervey except as the author of Theron and Aspasio*. His first work, the Meditations, ran through twenty editions in a very short time, and was translated into the Dutch language. Theron and Aspasio* met with acceptance all over England and Scotland, and even forced worldly critics to take notice of it. All these are plain facts that are not disputed. They are facts that stir up a little curiosity in our minds. We naturally want to know what kind of religious writing was popular in England in the 1700s. The first thoughts that will probably arise within us as we read Hervey's meditations and dialogues will be unmixed surprise and amazement. The style is so unusual that we are amazed that our forefathers could possibly have liked it. From beginning to end, the author writes in such an elaborate, extravagant, lavish, grandiose, flowery manner that he almost takes your breath away. You can hardly believe that he is sincere and that the whole thing is not a pretended act or pretense. The long words, the flamboyant manner of expressing thoughts, and the starched and decorated dress of the sentences are all so utterly unlike the writing of the present century that the reader stands astonished, and hardly knows whether he should laugh or cry. In the whole range of popular English books I do not hesitate to say that I do not know a style of writing less to be admired than the style of Theron and Aspasio. One cannot help inwardly feeling what a strange standard of public taste must have prevailed when such writing as this was deliberately published and universally admired. However first impressions are not always correct. We mustn't quickly condemn Hervey's writings as worthless because we're not used to their style. A little calm consideration will probably show us that there is far more to be said for them than at first appears. A second look at the Minister of Western Favelle's writings will very likely alter our judgment about them. To those who are inclined to think lightly of Hervey's writings, I want to present the following considerations. For one thing, we must, in fairness, remember the times in which Hervey wrote. The middle of the eighteenth century was an era in English literature when no writing would be accepted by the public that was not somewhat flowery, classical, long-worded, and formal. The short, plain, spirited style of the present day would have been condemned as indicative of a simple, uneducated mind. Poor Hervey wrote in days when moral essays were framed on the model of the Spectator the Tatler and the Rambler, and fictions such as Sir Charles Grandison and Clarissa Harlow were written. If he wanted to get the ear of the public, he had no alternative but to write according to the public taste. Let us grant that his style of English composition is far too ornate and fancy, but let us not forget to lay the blame at the right door. His faults were the faults of his day, If he had written Theron and Aspasio* in a plain unadorned style, it is probable that the book would have fallen unnoticed to the ground. For another thing, we must do Hervey the justice to remember that under all the flashy ornamentation of his compositions, his master's business is never forgotten. The more we read his books, the more we must admit that although he may not please our tastes, he is always most faithful to Christ's truth. It is impossible not to admire the vein of piety that runs through every page, as well as the ability with which he defends doctrines that the heart of man naturally detests. The only wonder is that books containing so much biblical truth ever became so extensively popular. Even Whitefield did not expect so much acceptance for them. I foretell the fate of these volumes, he said in a letter. Nothing but your scenery can screen you self will never consent to die, even though slain in so elegant a manner, without showing some resentment against the artful murderer. In fact, I always feel that God gave a special blessing to Hervey's writings because of His eminent faithfulness to the gospel in evil times. I look at them with reverence and respect, as weapons that did good service in their day, although their style may not suit my taste. To use the author's own words, they were an Attempt to dress the good old truths of the Reformation in such apparel of language as to appeal to people of all conditions. God was pleased to honor the effort in its day, and we do not need to be ashamed to honor it also. No well informed Christian will be surprised to hear that Hervey's writings did not please everybody. Of course, they were far too biblical to escape the enmity of the children of this world. Unfortunately, this was not all the enmity that the author of Theron Anaspasio had to endure. His clear and direct statements about justification gave great offense to Christians of the Armenian school of theology. John Wesley openly assaulted his views of imputed righteousness. Robert Sanderman, a Scotch independent, fiercely attacked his views of faith. In short, the gracious minister of Western Favel had to learn, like many other good men, that the most beautiful writing will not result in universal acceptance. The way of accurate biblical divinity is a way that many will always call heresy and speak against. Hervey's spirit and temper, under the assaults made upon him, were beyond all praise. Never was there a clergyman so utterly free from odium theologicum. It would have been good for the credit of the Church of Christ if the controversialists of the eighteenth century had all been as meek, gentle, gracious, and kind-hearted as the author of Theron and *Aspasio*. The letters that Hervey wrote on a great variety of topics are extraordinarily good, and will reward those who carefully read them. Sitting in his quiet country parsonage, he had time to think over all that he wrote. His correspondence, like that of his contemporary Henry Venn, is one of the best parts of his writings. Those who read his letters will find their style in general very different from that of Theron and Aspasio. The writer seems to come down from his high horse to deal familiarly and simply with people. The following letter to a dying young lady is a beautiful example of his style used in his letters and is so good throughout that my readers and listeners will probably not blame me if I quote it for them complete and entire. A facsimile of it faces the title page of my copy of Brown's Life of Hervey, and is a perfect specimen of small, delicate, finished, copperplate handwriting, dated April 26, 1755, written from Weston. Dear Miss Sarah, So you are going to leave us, and will be at your eternal home before us. I sincerely wish you an easy, comfortable, and a hopeful journey. Fear not! He who died for you on the cross will be with you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, 4. People who travel often sing along the way to make their journey more pleasant. Let me provide you with a song most exactly and pleasantly suited to your purpose. Who shall lay anything to my charge? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns me? It is Christ who died, yes, rather, who is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for me. Will the law lay anything to my charge? That has been fully satisfied by the obedience and death of my divine Lord. Will sin condemn me? that has all been fully born and has all been abolished by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will Satan accuse me? What will that avail when the judge himself justifies me and declares me righteous? See Romans 8.33-34, Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2.24, Daniel 9.24, and John 1.29. But will I be declared righteous, who have been and am a poor sinner? Hear what the Holy Spirit says: Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing ephesians five twenty five twenty seven What reason do they have to be afraid or ashamed, who have neither spot nor wrinkle nor any blemish? This will be the appearance of those who are washed in Christ's blood and clothed in Christ's righteousness. They will be presented faultless and with exceeding joy before the throne. Jude 1:24 But what will I do for my kind companions and dear friends? You will exchange them for better, far better. You will go to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You will go to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You will go to God, your reconciled God, the judge of all, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things for you than your heart can wish or your thoughts imagine. Hebrews 12:22 to 24 You might be feeling weak, Therefore, I will not tire you. May the Lord Jesus make these sweet verses a salve for your soul. I hope to follow you before long, to find you in the mansions of peace and joy, and to join with you in singing praise, everlasting praise, to Him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Revelation 1 5. Into His hands, His ever merciful and most compassionate hands, I commend your spirit your truly affectionate friend, James Hervey. I make no comment on this letter, for it doesn't need any. There are not many such letters written in these days of universal hurry under the influences of railway traveling, electric telegraphs, and penny post. The skill of writing such letters is quickly dying out of the world. But my readers and listeners will probably agree with me that the man who could write to his friends in this way was no ordinary Correspondent. James Hervey's published sermons are very few in number. It is much to be regretted that we don't have more of them. The few that have been published are so extremely good, both as to content and composition, that one feels sorry he didn't give the world a hundred more of the same kind. Of course, he could never have been a popular preacher. His weak health, feeble voice, and delicate constitution made this impossible. He often lamented his inability to serve his people better in the pulpit, comparing himself to a soldier wounded, bleeding, and disabled. He would frequently say, My preaching is not like sending an arrow from a bow, for which some strength of arm is necessary, but is more like pulling the trigger of a gun ready-charged, which the feeblest finger can do. This remark was quite true. There is no doubt that his lack of dynamic motion and delivery robbed his sermons of effectiveness but they were always full of excellent material and were excellently put together. The reader of Hervey's sermons will quickly discover that they are written in a style very unlike that of Theron and Aspasio. He will find comparatively little of that ornateness and ornamentation to which I have already alluded. He will see, to his surprise, a mode of speech that is very simple, clear, pointed, and direct, though never falling into rant and coarseness the minister of Western Favelle clearly had most just and wise views of the needs of a mixed country congregation. He knew that next to proclaiming sound doctrine, a minister's first goal should be to be understood. When, therefore, he got up into his Northamptonshire pulpit, he deliberately left behind his flowers and feathers, his paint and his ornamentation, his fine words and long sentences, and his classical allusions and elaborate arguments usefulness was the one thing that he desired to obtain and to obtain it he was not ashamed to speak very plain english to plain people the following paragraphs from a sermon preached by hervey in 1757 on the means of safety from hebrews 11:28 will probably be read and heard with interest as it provides a decent idea of his style of preaching let me give a word of direction run to christ alarmed sinners Come under the refuge of His blood, claim the blessed Jesus, look unto Him, and His merits are your own. Thus sprinkle His blood, sprinkle it upon your lintel and doorposts, Exodus twelve twenty-two to 23 Sprinkle it upon all you are, upon all you have, and all you do, upon your consciences that they may be purged, upon your souls that they may be sanctified, and upon your works that they may be accepted. Every one of you say, I am a poor, guilty, helpless creature. But in Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, I have righteousness and strength. I am a poor, depraved, loathsome creature. But Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God and the brightness of His Father's glory, Hebrews 1, 3, has loved me and washed me from my filthiness in His own blood. I am by nature a corrupt, depraved creature. And by evil practices, I am a lost, damnable sinner. But Jesus Christ, who made the world, Jesus Christ, whom heaven and earth adore, Jesus Christ Himself, came from the mansions of glory with the purpose of saving me, to give Himself for me. How can I perish who have such a ransom? Do you ask if you have authorization for such trust? I reply that you have the best authorization, our Lord's direct permission. Scripture. Whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. It does not say this or that person only, but whoever. That includes you and me, and it excludes no one. It doesn't say whoever is worthy, but whoever is willing. Will you be made whole? was our Lord's question to the disabled man at the pool of Bethesda. John 5, 6. Will you, in all terms and conditions apart, inherit grace and glory? Are you willing? This is His most compassionate address to sinful people in all ages. You have our Lord's most gracious invitation. Scripture, Come unto me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Whom does He call? The righteous? No. The excellent? Quite the opposite. He calls sinners, miserable sinners, even the most miserable of sinners. He calls those who are weary and heavy-laden, overwhelmed with iniquities, bowed down to the brink of hell and ready to think that there is no hope. Yet He encourages them, He invites them, and He declares to them, I will give you rest, rest in the enjoyment of peace with God and peace in your own consciences. Observe and admire the riches of your Redeemer's grace. He doesn't say that you are vile, wretched, polluted by sin, and enslaved to the devil, and therefore keep at a distance. But He says, Come! Come and be cleansed by My blood! Come and be made free by My Spirit! He doesn't say to bring along a recommendation or fulfill a requirement, but only, Come! Come just as you are, poor, ruined, guilty creatures! Yes, come to Me for pardon and recovery! Come to me, who have given myself, my life, and my all for your ransom. Should you still question whether these invaluable blessings are free for you? Remember, brethren, they are free for sinners. Does this include you? Then they are as free for your acceptance as for any person in the world. Eternal life is given to us, not to us who had deserved it by our goodness, but to us who had forfeited it by our sins. To you is preached the forgiveness of sins, not to you whose transgressions are few, but you whose iniquities are more in number than the hairs of your head. Even to you, who, a lost and perishing sinner of Adam's family, is the word of this salvation sent. By God's commission we publish it, that as sinners you may receive it, that receiving it you may begin believing, and that believing you may have life through his name. Come then, fellow sinners, and believe the record of heaven. God is true. Honor His Word, which cannot lie. Honor His grace, which is absolutely free. Honor His dear Son, who has obtained eternal redemption for such unworthy creatures as you and me. I only have two comments to make on this passage before I move on. If any reader of or listener to Hervey's works has accepted the idea that James Hervey could only write English after the model of Theron and Aspasio, I advise him to change his assessment of the good man's ability. The minister of Western Favel could be plain enough to suit the humblest intellect when he wanted to. If anyone thinks that the English pulpit of the present day is greatly in advance of the eighteenth century, I think he has something yet to learn. My own thoughtful opinion is that it would be a great blessing to this country if we had more of such direct preaching as some parishes in Northamptonshire heard in the seventeen hundreds. The private life of James Hervey was in complete harmony with his writing and preaching. It is the universal testimony of all who knew him that he was an eminently holy man. Even the clergy of the neighbourhood who disliked his theology and had no sympathy with his ways and opinions, could find no fault in his daily walk. In fact, they used to call him St. James. He never married, and by reason of his poor health, seldom left home and was confined to the house. But indoors or outdoors, he was always about his master's business, always redeeming the time, always reading, writing, or speaking about Christ, And always behaving like a man who had recently come from his Lord's presence to say something and who was soon going back again. His humility was noteworthy. He never considered himself as James Hervey, the celebrated writer, but as a poor, guilty sinner, just as indebted to divine grace as the lowest day laborer in his parish. To two criminals condemned to be hanged, he said, You have just the same foundation for hope as I must have when I will depart this life. When I will be summoned to the great judgment seat, my plea and my dependence will be nothing but Christ. I am a poor, unworthy sinner, but worthy is the Lamb that was slain. This is my only hope, and this is as free for you as it is for your friend and fellow sinner, James Hervey. On publishing his famous fast-day sermons, he said, May the Lord Jesus Himself, who was crucified in weakness assent to work by weakness or in other words by james hervey when he was close to death he wrote to a friend i ask him to unite his supplication with yours for i am fearful lest i should disgrace the gospel in my languishing moments pray for me the weakest of ministers and the weakest of christians his benevolence and self-denial were most noble He literally gave away almost all that he had, living on a mere fraction of his income. In his giving, he was always discreet. I am God's steward, he said, for his poor, and I must conserve the little portion I have to devote to them and make it go as far as possible. But when money was likely to be especially useful to others, as in the case of a long sickness or a sudden loss, he would give away more, being careful not to let others know from whom the money came. His income was never large, and it might be wondered how he managed to spare such amounts for charitable uses, but he saved nothing for himself, and gave away all the profits from his books, which were sometimes large sums, in doing good. In fact, this was his bank for the poor. I have devoted this fund, he said, to God. I will on no account apply it to any worldly uses, I do not write for profit or fame but to serve the cause of God, and as He has blessed my attempt, I think I am obligated to relieve the distresses of my fellow creatures with the profit that comes from that. He carried out this principle to the very end. Even after his death, he was found to have ordered all profits arising from any future sale of his books to be constantly applied to charitable uses. I do not have enough space to dwell specifically on all the leading features of Hervey's private character. The picture is far too large to go into the frame of a short account like this. His spirit of love to all God's people of every denomination, His delight in the company and conversation of godly people, His faithfulness in reproving sin, His exceptional love for Christ, His delight in Christ's finished work and atonement, His devotional diligence, his reverence for the Scriptures, his meekness, gentleness, and tenderness of spirit. These are all points on which much might be written, and much will be found in the pages of his biography. As far as I can judge, James Hervey was a man of as eminently saintly character as any that this country can point to, and one worthy to be ranked by the side of Bradford, Baxter, and George Herbert. Few evangelical men of the eighteenth century can be named who seem to have had so few enemies and to have lost so few friends. None certainly were as universally lamented. The closing scene of James Hervey's life was especially beautiful. He died as he had lived for seventeen years in the full faith and peace of Christ's gospel. His life had long been a continual struggle with disease and when his last illness came upon him, it found him thoroughly prepared. Invalids have one great advantage over strong people. A sudden accession of pains and ailments does not startle them, and they are seldom taken by surprise. The holy minister of Western Favelle had looked death in the face so long that death was not a stranger to him. When he went down into the cold waters of the great river, he walked calmly, quietly, and undisturbed those glorious evangelical doctrines that he had proclaimed and defended as truths while he lived were his strong consolations while he died. His last attack of illness began in October 1758 and carried him off on Christmas Day. Disease of the lungs, with all its distressing accompaniments, was the agent employed to take down his earthly tabernacle. He seems to have gone through even more than the ordinary suffering that such disease entails but nothing shook the dying sufferer's faith he had his days of conflict and inward struggle like most of christ's faithful soldiers but he always came out more than conqueror through him who loved him romans 8:37 an abundant entrance into rest was ministered to him he entered the harbor at last not like a shipwrecked sailor clinging to a broken plank but like a stately ship with all her sails expanded and carried forward by a favorable wind the dying sayings of eminent saints, when God permits them to say much, are always instructive. This was the case with James Hervey. Like dying Jacob, he was enabled to speak to all around him, and he testified of his deep sense of the value of Christ's great salvation. Like Christiana in Pilgrim's Progress, he was enabled to speak comfortably to those who stood near him and who followed him to the riverside. At an early period of his last illness, he wrote to his doctor, I now spend almost all my entire time in reading and praying over the Bible. Indeed, you cannot conceive how the springs of life in me are relaxed and relaxing. What you do, do quickly, is a proper admonition for me as I approach death. My dear friend, attend to the one thing needful. I have no heart to take any medicine. Everything except Christ is unprofitable to me. Blessed be God for pardon and salvation through His blood. Let me prescribe this for my dear friend. My cough is very troublesome. I cannot get much rest, but my never failing remedy is the love of Christ. On the 15th of December, the month that he died, he spoke very strongly to his ministerial assistant, Mr. Maddock, about the assurance of faith and the great love of God in Christ. Oh, how much has Christ done for me, and how little have I done for such a loving Saviour! If I preached even once a week, it was but a burden to me. I haven't visited the people of my parish as I should have done. I should have preached from house to house. I have not taken every opportunity of speaking for Christ. Don't think I am afraid to die. I assure you, I am not. I know what my Savior has done for me. I want to be gone, but I wonder and lament to think of the love of Christ in doing so much for me and how little I have done for Him. On the 25th of December, the day that he died, his loving friend and physician, Dr. Stonehouse, came to see him about three hours before he passed away. Hervey seized the opportunity. He spoke strongly and affectionately to Dr. Stonehouse about his soul's concerns and urged him not to be overburdened with the cares of this life. Seeing his great weakness and weariness, the doctor begged him to spare himself. No, doctor, replied the dying man with fervor. No! You tell me I have only a few minutes to live. Let me spend them in adoring our great Redeemer. He then quoted Psalm 73, 26. Though my heart and my flesh fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He also dwelt in a delightful manner on Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 3, 22. All things are yours, whether life or things present or things to come. He exclaimed, Here, here is the treasury of a Christian. Death is counted among this inventory, and a noble treasure it is. How thankful I am for death, as it is the passage through which I go to the Lord and giver of eternal life. It frees me from all the misery that you see me now endure, and that I am willing to endure as long as God thinks appropriate. I know that He will soon, in His own good time, dismiss me from the body these light afflictions are but for a moment and then comes an eternal weight of glory 2 corinthians 4:17 oh welcome welcome death you are rightly counted among the treasures of the christian scripture to live is christ and to die is gain philippians 1:21 then hervey lay for a considerable time without seeming to breathe and his friends thought he was gone but he revived a little and being raised in his chair, said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, according to your most holy and comfortable words, for my eyes have seen your most holy and comfortable salvation. This, doctor, is my medicine. What is all the medicine given to support the dying in comparison to that which arises from the promises of salvation by Christ? This, this supports me. He said little after this, and was quickly drawing to his end. About three o'clock in the afternoon, he said, The conflict is over. Now all is done. After that time, he hardly spoke anything understandable except the words, Precious Salvation. At last, about four o'clock on Christmas Day in 1758, without a sigh or a groan, he shut his eyes and departed, at the age of forty-five. Never, perhaps, was there a more triumphant illustration of the saying of a great spiritual champion of the eighteenth century, The world may not like our Methodists and evangelical people, but the world cannot deny that they die well. I leave James Hervey here, having traced his history from the cradle to the grave. He was a man of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews 11.38 and one to whom even the church of God has never given his due measure of honor. I am well aware that he was not perfect. I do not pretend to say that I can agree entirely with everything he wrote, either about the nature of faith or about assurance, but whatever his faults and defects, I do believe that he was one of the holiest and best ministers in England in the eighteenth century, and that he did a work in his time that will be seen to have borne good fruit in the last great day. I know that Hervey was mainly a writer, and that the value of his works has almost passed away. Like our old wooden three-deckers, they did good service in their time, but are now comparatively obsolete and laid aside. However, I believe the day will never come when the church will not require pens as well as tongues, able writers as well as able preachers. I dare to think it would be good for the church of our day if we had a few more determined students and careful writers of the character of James Hervey. I therefore boldly claim for him a high place among the spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century. Let us admire Whitefield and Wesley, but let us not refuse Hervey his crown. He deserves to be remembered. I now conclude this account with a few testimonies to Hervey's virtues which, to say the least, demand serious attention. The witnesses are all men of character and men who had many opportunities of weighing the merits of preachers and writers. Let us hear what they thought of the subject before us, the minister of Western Favell. My first witness is William Romaine. He says, I never saw any one who came so near to the biblical character of a Christian as Mr. Hervey. God enriched him with great gifts and great graces. He had a fine understanding and a great memory. He was very well skilled in Hebrew and was excellent in Greek. There was great experience of heart love upon his tongue. He used to speak of the love of the adorable Redeemer like one who had seen Him face to face in the fullness of His glory. As to his writings, I leave them to speak for themselves. They stand in no need of my praises. My next witness is Henry Venn. He says, Mr. Hervey was the most extraordinary man I ever saw in my life. He was as much beyond most of the excellent as the swan for whiteness and stately figure is beyond the common bird. His meditations and contemplations deserve your most sincere regard. You may look upon them as you would upon Aaron's rod, by which such wonders were worked. These thoughts have been the means of giving sight to the blind, Life to souls dead in trespasses and sins, and winning the young, the light-hearted, and the rich to see greater charms in a crucified Saviour than in all that dazzles vain minds. My next witness is William Cowper, the poet. He says, Perhaps I may be partial to Hervey, but I think that he is one of the most biblical writers in the world. Richard Cecil is my next witness. He says, Let us do the world justice it has seldom found considerate, gentle, but earnest, heavenly, and enlightened teachers. When it has found such, truth has received a very general attention. Such a man was Hervey, and his works have met their reward. My next witness is Edward Biggesteth. He says, Few books have been as useful as Hervey's, Theron, and *Aspasio*, although, like every human writing, it is not free from error. However, with a few exceptions, the clear statements of divine truth in the book, and the Christian addresses of the author, full of kindness and affection, gentleness and sweetness of spirit, draw out your best feelings and win you over to evangelical principles. My last witness is Daniel Wilson, Bishop of Calcutta. He says in his journal, on July 24, 1846, I have been peacefully and pleasantly reading a volume of Hervey's letters. It is filled with that thorough devotedness of heart, deadness to all earthly things, and thirsting after grace and holiness that characterize the leaders of the revival in our church. Oh, that the spirit of Hervey might pervade our younger clergy and myself! To walk with God is the only spring of happiness and usefulness! Testimonies like these deserve serious attention. My firm belief is that they are well deserved.